This is Sea Power, the podcast from the Center for Naval Warfare Studies at the U.S. Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Our program showcases leading thinkers and doers in the art and practice of maritime strategy and operations, broadcasting their cutting-edge insights around the world and to all the ships at sea. I'm Isaac Carden, and I'm delighted to host today's conversation with Dr. Emily Holland, assistant professor here at the War College's Russia Maritime Studies Institute. Views presented here do not reflect the official positions of the Naval War College, the Department of the Navy, or the Department of Defense. We're going to discuss the Russian Federation's use of its energy resources and distribution networks as a geopolitical tool. We're going to try and understand the mechanics of Russian leverage and consider how that affects the interests and options of Europe, China, and the United States. So first, let's meet our distinguished guests. Emily, could you tell us a little bit more about your research background, the kinds of problems you're interested in studying, and how and why you came to studying the geopolitics of Russian energy? Thanks for having me, Isaac. So I'm a professor at the Russian Maritime Studies Institute, and my particular area of focus is the geopolitics of energy, and particularly Russian geopolitics of energy. I began studying for my dissertation, which was on the politics of Russian energy leverage over Europe from 2008 on. And over the years, I've just studied a little bit deeper into how Russia engages in economic statecraft. So how it pursues its foreign policy goals through economics and particularly through its use of energy because it's an energy superpower. Let's dive right in. Can you talk to us a little bit about what is the nature of Russia's coercive leverage on energy markets, whether in Europe or elsewhere, and how have they been used in a practical sense? Sure. Well, to put it pretty simply, Russia is an energy superpower. They have huge resources of oil, natural gas, coal, critical minerals, basically everything you can think of. Basically anything that's a material, they have a lot of timber even, right? So they play a really outsized role in the global economy relative to the size of the Russian economy. Their most primary leverage is in fact in Europe because over the years, Europe became extremely dependent on imports of Russian oil, coal, and natural gas. Prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February, 2022, Europe was importing about 40% of all of its oil from Russia, 33% natural gas, and about 40 to 50% of all of its coal came from Russia. So a really significant portion of its energy resources came from Russia. And Russia, of course, cultivated this over you know, many, many years, decades, right, in order to cultivate this dependence. Russia also sells to other places, too. They sell more and more to China, more and more to premium Asian markets. And in general, they have a, a big say in sort of what global oil prices are because they're a major producer of oil. They are not a member of OPEC, but they are a member of OPEC+. Plus. So they work in concert with OPEC to sort of control how much oil is being released onto the market at a certain time, and then that then affects the global price of oil. So they really do have a pretty large voice uh, in the global economy just based on their role as an energy exporter. Excellent. I definitely want to put a pin in your comment about China, which we're going to come back to later in the program. But taking us up to the present day and the sort of scene setter is the explosions of the Nord Stream pipelines that you've written about recently in War on the Rocks and elsewhere. Could you tell us a little bit about those explosions, why they're significant, and what they might tell us about Russia's challenge to European energy security? So this was pretty simply explosive news. Excuse the pun. It's huge. Nord Stream was a pipeline built to directly connect 
Russia with German consumers. It's a natural gas pipeline. And the first tranche of the pipeline was inaugurated about 10 years ago. And it was a huge monument in European energy security because the Germans wanted a direct route for cheap and plentiful Russian energy that would bypass the current transit regimes, which were at that time basically moving through Ukraine. And Ukraine and Russia had had very many energy disputes over the years, basically particularly about transiting gas through Ukraine to European consumers. There had been gas shutoffs in 2006 and 2009 that had resulted in like these horrible gas crises in Europe. And so the Germans were seeking a way to sort of securitize their energy imports from Russia. So those were built and constructed. They were very controversial from the beginning. Both Poland and Ukraine were extremely against these pipelines. They argued that Western Europe was cultivating a dangerous dependence on Russian energy that was ignoring the major security concerns that that would have. And actually, the U.S. was also really against this pipeline from the beginning. The U.S. was kind of lobbying in Europe throughout the mid-2000s against Nord Stream, saying this is a bad idea to cultivate further dependence on Russian energy. And not just the Germans, but actually a consortium of Western European states, France, the Netherlands, and more, they poo-pooed this, and they went ahead, and Nord Stream was sort of locked in. Of course, they tried to just build another trench of the pipeline, Nord Stream 2, which was extremely controversial from the very beginning. And this was sort of one of the main points of concern leading up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. The Germans were about to certify this pipeline, but at the last minute, Schultz, Germany's prime minister canceled the certification of this pipeline, which was sort of a sea change in how Germany had pursued its energy policy since the 1970s. And so this pipeline, despite the fact that it was ready to go, was not actually pumping any gas. And then as the deterioration of relations between Europe and Russia continued throughout the course of the war, Russia actually started slowly turning down the amount of gas it was sending through the pipeline to Germany, arguing that there were technical problems that it couldn't meet due to sanctions against Russia. So in particular, Russia said, we can't replace broken turbines because you're sanctioning them. So this was sort of Russia trying to argue for a little bit of removal of sanctions in order to get the gas flowing back to Europe. Now, these explosions greatly damaged three out of the four pipelines. Gas was leaking into the North Sea that's been stopped. There's a lot of mystery and uncertainty about actually what happened to the pipeline. We don't know, but currently there's investigators from NATO member states that are looking into this right now to see what happens. But the sort of short answer is what this means. It means there's going to be no gas coming through these pipelines for the near future, probably for a long time. So that's removing quite a significant bit of gas to the European market right ahead of winter season. I'm glad that you brought up the sanctions regime on Russia, which of course predates their invasion of Ukraine, but has become much, much more intensive since then. And I'm curious your sense of how effective Russia's energy weapon is in the face of this evolving sanctions regime. How well prepared was Russia for the sanctions regime that we've seen? To what extent does this energy weapon blunt or counteract it in a way? Did they prepare the battlefield, in a sense, in a way that allowed them to use this instrument effectively? And I guess just a a last piece of that is, do you get the sense that Putin or whomever is making decisions about using this energy instrument, are they making sound choices? Do they understand the nature of the leverage? And are they using it in an effective way? Or is it a bit more messy in its implementation? 
Well, the timing of this entire conflict is pretty indicative. As Putin was sort of amassing troops on the border last fall, Europe was already in a really severe energy crisis that predated any Russian invasion of Ukraine. A few things happened in the global energy markets over the past few years, but one of the main things was that there was underinvestment in traditional oil and gas resources over the last several decades because of the desire to transition to a clean energy revolution. So there was underinvestment in oil and gas. And then after the pandemic last summer, there was a huge kind of unexpected roaring back of demand, particularly in Asia, which sent prices around the world skyrocketing and led to a real dearth of energy supply. So this was already happening. Europe was already paying five, six times the price of natural gas that it was in 2020 or 2019, I should say. And so that was the sort of background. And I think probably what Putin's calculus was, was that Europe is so dependent on Russian energy, he probably guessed that Europe would not have the fortitude to stand up to Russia in terms of its energy resources. And in fact, even after Crimea, the Europeans were very, very careful not to sanction Russian energy because they were so dependent on it and they didn't really have a lot of ways around it. So it seems to me that Putin calculated there's no way they're going to sanction energy. Now, that's actually not what happened. Very quickly, Europe and the West did sanction Russian energy, agreeing to first a coal ban and then an oil ban. Putin was not prepared for the breakup of this relationship. I will say Europe was not prepared for it either. So Europe has embarked on a completely dramatic transformation of its entire energy security and energy market system. They have announced a complete break with Russian energy. They want to get off of it. They have not actually announced a complete break from Russian gas, simply because there's so many reasons why they can't do that in the short term. But this is going to be very, very painful for Europe. So even trying to find other supplies from, say, the United States or from countries in North Africa, they still can't replace all the volumes of Russian energy that they would have otherwise. This is going to adversely affect European industrial production. We're going to have to have pretty moderate to severe cuts in Russian energy demand this winter. And that will probably happen for the next three years. So that is a real deterrent that unfortunately for Putin did not work. I think Europe has gotten itself in a position where it's committed, it realizes it must break this relationship, but it wasn't prepared for it. And now it's faced with having to make a transition that should probably take 25 years in a couple of years. Could you expand a bit more on why it is that Europe can't replace Russian gas in particular and why oil is an easier substitution? Sure. So oil is just a much more fungible commodity. It's shipped in tankers and you can kind of send it around the world. It's a globally traded commodity. Natural gas is actually not. So because natural gas is flammable and pressurized, the best way to transport it is through fixed infrastructure, aka pipelines. Over the last 25 years, there have been technological advancements in what we call LNG, liquefied natural gas, which is basically where you turn natural gas into a liquid state, uh, can ship it, and then you have to send it to a port, regasify it, and then send it to you know wherever it's going. But the problem is you need to have special infrastructure for liquefied natural gas. Europe does not have enough liquefied natural gas infrastructure to replace all the volumes of pipeline gas that it currently gets. So even if it could buy up all the LNG in the world, of which there are other people buying it too, so it has competition for, it still could not distribute it where it needs to go because there's no infrastructure. Pipelines are really expensive. They're fixed point-to-point infrastructure. They take billions and many years to build. And so sort of replacing those overnight is just not feasible. 
And so that's why Europe cannot actually proceed with zero Russian gas. You know, it's filled up its storage tank maybe for this year. The worst case scenario in which no Russian gas is coming to Europe over the next two years, it's a real problem, catastrophic problem. Europe would at least have to cut its demand probably by 20 to 25%, maybe even more. And that is huge for industry. Like basically any energy intensive industry is no longer competitive at that point because there's energy rationing. And so that's a huge change in the quality of life for Europe and basically completely destroys European competitiveness for, for European industry. Thank you for that, Emily. And we'll come back a little bit to what role the United States might play in that. But I want to dwell for a little bit longer on the energy challenge facing Europe and just explore a little bit some of the things that Europe as a whole or even individual European countries have been doing to mitigate this dependence on Russia. It sounds like you're a bit pessimistic on the prospects for them actually substituting for it in the near term. But can you give us a sense of the timeframes and some of the investment and construction and other things that need to happen in order for Europe to be on relatively stable ground in terms of energy security moving forward? So this past summer, the European Commission unveiled a plan called Repower EU, which was a complete recomposition of all of Europe's energy plans and energy security. And it basically said, we want to get off Russian everything, all Russian energy, within the next 10 years. In some cases, all of Russian gas within the next two years. And they had a plan for how they would make up for those missing volumes. It was a combination of conservation, better energy efficiency, making up through increased imports from Norway and the United States and other places. They used what we call magic math. So technically, sometimes their numbers added up, but when you really looked into them, they were pretty fuzzy. Mm -hmm. And most serious analysts looked at this and said, this is just far too optimistic. Sure, over the next five years, Europe, with some major sacrifices, could get there, for sure. But the next two years are a huge problem. Nobody really knows how to solve it. That is why Russian gas was not sanctioned because Europe realizes it literally needed a lot of those Russian pipeline volumes, even as they were being reduced dramatically. They needed some, or else they just could not make the math work. They could not get through the next two seasons. So is that another way of saying that the gas piece of this instrument, at a minimum, Russia is using to good effect from Russia's standpoint? Absolutely. And, and gas has always been the political weapon because it's a regionally traded commodity. It's not global. I mean, Russia sells gas to European states in opaque, secret bilateral contracts. So for years, Russia was doing this. It was making some countries pay a lot higher prices for gas, ones that didn't have as much leverage, right? It was giving discounts to its friends like Hungary and Germany. So it was always sort of using this gas as a weapon because European states didn't have any other options. Where else are they going to get pipelines gas? The pipelines were built back in the 60s and 70s, so they were locked in to buying it from one consumer, and especially the landlocked states. Uh, you know, as technology changed and LNG was more available over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, some states with ports could buy other things, but landlocked states didn't have any other choice. So Russia was really using these constraints as leverage, sort of turning states against each other to sort of break up Europe's ability to act as a block, to sort of break that cohesion. And that was very successful for Russia. And it still is, because you still have some states, most notably Hungary, that are refusing to go along with EU plans, EU sanctions, because they want to continue to have the energy relationship with Russia because they don't have other options. Thank you. And in the spirit of thinking about how this plays out in specific relationships, you mentioned Hungary there. There are two others that I wanted to drill down on a little bit. 
the first of which is Germany. And I'm curious, can you tell us a little bit more about why Germany opted into energy dependence with Russia, what the nature of that security and geopolitical calculation was, and tell us a little bit more about where they are now on that long-term policy. So this is one of the most fascinating aspects, if you ask me, the German-Russian energy relationship. So this began late 60s, early 70s as part of Ostpolitik. So Willy Brandt, he was the chancellor of the FRG, and he basically had this plan that was, how can we normalize relations with the East? And he thought that the best way to do that was through creating economic linkages, creating liberal linkages, right? So this is sort of the basics of IR liberal theory, right? Create these linkages through trade and you will normalize relationships. You'll create commonalities and you'll bring each other closer. So Ostpolitik was really the guiding principle of Germany until 2022. All leaders sort of pursued this policy. It was advantageous to both. I think that the important thing to note is it was great for Russia, right? Because they had this huge market where they could sell their wares. They had pretty strong lobbyists for Russian interests in German utility companies. So German utilities were making tons of money off the gas trade. They would always lobby for Russia. And they were in bed with the CDU, the Christian Democratic Union, which was Angela Merkel's party, because that was the party of industry. And really, you know, the German economic miracle was built on this grand bargain which was that we need cheap and plentiful Russian energy to power German industry, which is the heart of the European economy. And the only reason European industry remained competitive on the global market was because of this bargain. It was crucial for both Russia and Europe, and Germany in particular. And so as the East, particularly Poland, a long-standing opponent of Russia, and Ukraine, of course, were saying, no, this is traitorous, you're basically sacrificing Eastern security for your own economic welfare— Well, you know, this was powering the German economic miracle at the same time. And so it was very difficult to break that relationship. And as we saw leading up to Russia's invasion, even the new leader, Schultz, was very, very reluctant to break that. He did not want to. He waited till February 22nd to go ahead and cancel Nord Stream 2, despite months of calls from all allies, West, East, Ukraine, to to stop this pipeline. He was reluctant to do that because that was just completely breaking the way Germany had conducted its policies since the 1970s. And yet the coincidence of that decision on February 22nd and the full-scale Russian invasion on the 24th is pretty notable. How do you interpret that uh, sequence? Was that a reflection of Russia saying, okay, this policy that we'd been pursuing with Germany is now no longer viable and we have nothing else to lose? Well, the timing was certainly very interesting regarding the Nord Stream 2 certification. I think that Putin probably bet that if they were able to sort of make a fait accompli in Ukraine, take Kiev without too much difficulty, that Europe would throw a fit, maybe throw some sanctions, would ultimately decide during the winter where there is an energy crisis not to take things too much further. Similar to how the West reacted after Crimea. Because you have to remember, after Crimea, basically there were no sanctions against Russian energy. So... That's probably what Russia thought. They thought this relationship would be able to survive because, you know, this relationship survived the collapse of the Soviet Union, German unification, chaos in the 90s, Crimea. It survived all of that. Ukraine is a key component of this. Probably the biggest issues before Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014 were energy issues between Russia and Ukraine. There were these huge, numerous energy disputes between Russia and Ukraine, basically starting from the time of Ukrainian independence in 91 all the way through today. 
many disputes over pricing and transit because Ukraine, as you mentioned, is a key transit corridor for European gas to go from Russia to Europe. And so there were a number of, you know, major incidents where Russia turned off the gas to Europe because they said Ukraine was stealing it or Ukraine said we want more for gas transit or something like that. So it was always a point of contention. Meanwhile, Ukraine was always arguing to Europe, don't buy more energy from Russia because they use it as a weapon. So this was sort of the issue. And for many years, basically Europe ignored. Is it fair to say that that European position on Ukraine vis-a-vis its role in conveying Russian energy, has that changed fundamentally? Or is there variation between, you mentioned Hungary being much more pro-Russia, Germany obviously in the midst of a transformational shift in policy. How do you describe that laydown in Europe? Where are the rest of the European states? So there always were a lot of differences in opinion in what Europe's energy should be. The main cleavage, of course, was East and West. So mm-hmm. for the, from the majority of the time, basically Western Europe was like, yeah, 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 we don't care about security. We just want our Russian gas and we're just going to keep buying it. And, you know, you East kind of be quiet. They were paying a lot less for gas than the states in the East were. I mean, if you think about it, the states that were really reliant on Russian gas, let's say like Lithuania which was, you know, basically 100% reliant on Russian gas, they were paying five times more than Germany was for their gas because Russia was basically doing energy coercion to them. They spent a lot of time, basically before anyone else, in trying to get off of Russian energy. They were the first ones to sort of say, we are going to diversify away from Russian gas. They inaugurated this floating liquefied natural gas terminal called the Freedom in like a really splashy ceremony. So they were sort of the vanguards in this. Obviously, Poland was very anti-Russian energy. But there were all sorts of other dynamics going on in Europe at the same time, including the move towards clean energy. So there were all of these different pressures. So at the same time that some states were like, we want to get off of Russian energy, the European Union was also saying, you have to stop burning coal. So reducing coal means that you need to start burning something else, which was gas. And the only place to get that gas was Russia. So Mm -hmm. there was this real tension on how are we going to move to net zero And the consensus was we need natural gas as a bridge fuel to do that. The place to get natural gas was Russia. So it actually sort of increased demand on Russian fuels in the meantime, despite the fact that it was sort of a critical security issue. Not exactly a well-calibrated policy as we're seeing now. I wonder if we could look at one particular linkage here and befitting our discussion here on a Sea Power podcast at a Naval War College To what extent is the Black Sea or the Baltic or any of these maritime domains in which energy is being shipped in tankers or under the sea in pipelines, what are the maritime security dynamics there? And and maybe more specifically, you talked about Russia at the outset as an energy superpower, but maybe not so much by implication, other types of superpowers. What is the pairing between Russia's maritime power, in which I'd include not just naval forces, but all of the capabilities that they can bring to bear in that domain? Is that posing a problem? Does that make the energy challenge from Russia more or less salient? Well, I think one of the sort of main implications of this break between Europe and Russia on energy is that maritime transport of energy is much more important now for Europe than it was prior to the war. So now there's a lot more shipments of liquefied natural gas coming from a variety of places, including the United States. And so the pressures on maritime transport towards Europe are actually huge. And the infrastructure, 
So the thing that Nordstrom really brings up to me and, and what I wrote about in my War on the Rocks piece is that, you know, critical infrastructure is vulnerable. We know one of the central tenets of Russian warfighting is to attack critical infrastructure. So we don't know what happened with Nord Stream. I'll say that again. We're still parsing it out. But say, for example, Russia did decide to blow up this pipeline. Well, they did it at exactly the same day that a new pipeline was inaugurated, a Norwegian pipeline. Maybe that was some sort of show of force to say, hey, you're really vulnerable. And if there's no gas coming through Nord Stream and then God forbid something were to happen to that Norwegian pipeline, much of Central Europe would not have enough energy. They would just basically go dark. Accepting hypothetically that Russia deliberately scuttled those pipelines in a way that's demonstrating a capability that they might use in a different setting, whether it's on new Norwegian pipelines or any other critical infrastructure for that matter, as you point out. That's probably a very likely interpretation of the events. And so we've actually seen this. We've seen Norway increase their presence around their critical pieces of infrastructure, around oil fields, around the pipeline. So I think we're going to see a lot more maritime presence around these critical pieces of maritime infrastructure, particularly energy infrastructure, over the next little while. And this is sort of a case of, of sort of life imitating work. Over the last few years, I've done a lot of war games with various naval communities where I said, well, what if Russia were to attack these liquefied natural gas terminals and these pipelines, how would you get together to sort of defend and protect them? And then lo and behold, we actually have a real case of this potentially in Nord Stream 2. So that's really critical. The Black Sea, of course, is now an area of intense focus, both in terms of conflict, but also in terms of energy, because now with Nord Stream offline and potentially a disruption in gas transit through Ukraine because of a, another dispute that might be coming between Russia and Ukraine, the third sort of corridor for Russian gas to enter Europe is through the Black Sea. It's called the Turk Stream Pipeline. So it's a pipeline that goes from Russia to Turkey and then comes up through Southern Europe to Central Europe. So that pipeline is still going, but if something were to happen with that, then all of those three critical transit corridors of Russian gas could go offline. Obviously, the Turk Stream pipeline is quite political because it's Turkish. And as you know, there's a lot of complications in the relationship between both Russia and Turkey and Turkey and NATO. And Turkey has pursued over the past decade much more close ties with Russia uh, in terms of energy, um, in terms of sort of financing and, and a lot of other economic statecraft deals. So that's a quite complicated issue. wonder if I could draw you out a bit more on this Turkey question, especially in the context of Russia's overall maritime power in the Black Sea. We know the Turks have announced that they will not allow Russian warships to pass through the Turkish Straits, which my understanding will be or already is necessary in order to sustain naval operations there over the course of this war. As the war drags on, how important is that, particularly the energy element of it, given how tightly enmeshed in that Turkey is with Russia? A lot of the Black Sea fleet has been pulled from Sebastopol back to Novorossiysk, which is uh, sort of further away because the Russians were concerned about Ukrainian shore capabilities at being able to land on their fleet. And as you know, the destruction of the Moskva was obviously a, a huge humiliation for the Black Sea fleet. The issue with the strait is really crucial. I mean, right now, probably the most important thing is grain transit. There's that grain deal that's been hammered out, allowing shipments of Russian grain to exit the Black Sea and come to the market. That's crucial because we're on the precipice of a serious global food crisis. But that could break down at any time. And most experts really think that that's just a matter of time before that deal breaks down. 
in which case global food markets are, are torn asunder again. So maintaining trade, even in the time of war, is super important. And so we'll see how that plays out as the war continues, since Russia keeps continuing to face losses. We'll see kind of how else they turn to flex their muscles. And in the past, of course, they have certainly done that with energy. With that in mind, this idea of having to maintain trade in order to keep the lights on and for Russia to keep foreign exchange coming in and be able to finance their war effort and anything else they want to do at home. I want to think about the beneficiaries of this. And in particular, in keeping with our discussions this season on the podcast about great power competition at sea, I want to turn first to China and then to the United States and think a little bit more about how Russia's actions in the energy space affect their interests. You wrote in War on the Rocks that Moscow is now China's gas station, which I think is a memorable statement. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit. Does this mean that China gets better prices, larger volumes, or accrue some other kind of economic and political leverage in this relationship with Russia over energy? The war in Europe has only served to rapidly accelerate a trend that was already happening basically prior to this war, which was Russia being forced to turn towards China as a market for its energy as Europe was winding down or said that it was going to wind down its reliance on hydrocarbons ahead of Europe's goal to be carbon neutral by 2050. So Russia had already for you know, over a decade been looking at China to supplant their leverage in Europe. So they had this landmark deal with China called the Power of Siberia, which was a pipeline linking Russia directly to Chinese markets, $400 billion pipeline, huge 30-year deal. They've expanded that pipeline more than they anticipated over the past few years. But for Russia, China is not Europe. So China can basically take as much as Russia will sell them, but they'll never pay what Europe paid. Russia was extremely disappointed in the negotiations with China over the price it would pay for natural gas and the power of Siberia pipeline. And China has other options. So, so the thing about Europe was they didn't have a lot of other options. So they were forced into kowtowing a little bit to sort of Moscow's needs, but China has other options. Because of the war, Russia's been offering discounted volumes to both China and India. As a result of that, Russia is now China's number one supplier of oil, crude. So it, it took the mantle from Saudi Arabia for the mm -hmm. first time ever. And I think that will probably continue for the foreseeable future. So that relationship, I think, will continue to sort of institutionalize over the next few years, particularly as Russia really winds down its energy trade with Europe. But it can't do it right away because it needs to build the infrastructure to do that. And it can't sort of just take the gas that it was sending, the gas or oil it was sending to Europe and send it to China because you have to build completely new infrastructure for that. And the field that Russia uses to get its energy to sell to Europe, that's too far away from China. So it has to develop Eastern Russian fields to send to China. So that's going to take a while. It's going to take a lot of capital. So right now, Russia has a lot of rubles, a lot of rubles because of the energy crisis. Basically, Europe was sending Russia way more money than it had been even 2020 or 2019. And so it has a lot of rubles. It can do that, but it doesn't help the sort of structural problems of the Russian economy. So Russia will be poor in the long run. It will have to partner with China for the capital to build that infrastructure to sort of build out and sustain that relationship. Right. And, you know, we're talking about leverage here, and we have been talking about Russian leverage over Europe, but I want to explore a little bit more the nature of Chinese leverage over Russia. You mentioned they're becoming disproportionate purchasers of Russian energy, and that disproportion is likely to increase over time. We talked about the necessity for building infrastructure. Of course, that is something that China has a genuine competitive advantage in. 
And so one of the things I'm looking at from the perspective of studying Chinese foreign policy is what more is China going to be asking for from Russia? And we can narrow it down to energy now and energy infrastructure. But you have to think that over the fullness of time, Russia is getting weaker in almost every respect vis-a-vis China. And the invasion certainly is not helping things from China's perspective either in terms of Russia's fundamental solvency and strength as a great power in Europe. And so I'm curious what you see Russian receptiveness to some of the things that maybe China has wanted from them over time. Here I'm thinking about, say, access to Arctic ports or developing some of the LNG or other infrastructure up there. Certainly pipelines in the Far East. This is a longstanding concern of essentially Chinese colonization of Russian territory in the Far East. What are some of the ways that you expect the China-Russia relationship surrounding energy to evolve moving forward, given the new power dynamics or what we can say of them from this point in time in the midst of a war in Europe? I think exactly what you said is correct. You know, Russia was always skeptical and suspicious of China. They've never really understood China. They've never really trusted them, but they felt like there was no option. They knew eventually that, you know, Europe would be moving or transitioning away from from hydrocarbons, so they would have to find another market. And and China, of course, was the natural option to replace that because they have such a voracious appetite for energy. But they were never comfortable with that. And Russia was never comfortable sort of playing little brother to China. Now they just don't have a choice. It's very clear to Russian leaders that they just have no choice. They are going to have to sort of work together with China, probably take a little bit of a backseat role. I think rhetorically, they will keep saying that this is a a win for multipolarity, which they've been saying for years, right? Mm -hmm. And sort of have to frame their relationship with China in terms of creating alternate poles of power against the United States. But I think that they will have to sort of kowtow to some of China's demands. I think it's inevitable. The money will run out after a while. They're going to be making less and less money. And so they're going to have to be more comfortable with Chinese investment. So some of their Arctic projects in the past, they had made legislation topping out Chinese investment at, say, 20 percent because they were nervous that China would just sort of take over the entire project. I think those rules are going to have to be relaxed moving forward as they seek to develop Arctic infrastructure and more pipelines, but they won't be happy with it. And I think as we move into this period of whatever, great power competition, strategic competition, whatever you want to call it. Russia is now weakened, I would say, for the next 10 years considerably. But, you know, Russia is very good at getting stuff back, at being resurgent, at sort of regathering itself, retreating and coming back. And certainly I think it'll take at least 10 years for the Russian military to sort of replace what it's lost, rebuild, create new stuff, sort of get itself back together in some sort of new form, whatever that may be. But you can't count them out. Um, You know, of course, they are a major nuclear state. They're a major navy. They've invested a lot in their navy over the last 10 years, particularly in submarines and being a sort of capable regional fleet that's able to flex its muscle and, of course, protect the Russian mainland. We've seen, as you know, considerable exercises between Russia and China over the last few years, military cooperation, and and we're going to keep seeing that. Curious if you can turn us to how this whole situation in Europe and with Russian energy coercion affects the United States and its NATO allies. Specifically, to what degree is the U.S. or U.S. national security or energy security at risk from these Russian actions, largely to coerce or even punish European actors? Does American, quote unquote, energy independence 
our own production of vast quantities of oil and gas, does that make us relatively less harmed or in a relatively better position in some way? What should we understand about this from the perspective of U.S. interests and the geopolitical situation confronting us? So the U.S. is a really interesting case in energy security because at once the U.S. is one of the world's largest oil and gas producers, but it's also one of the world's largest oil and gas consumers. Mm -hmm. So we both sell a lot and buy a lot. And I think most people, they hear U.S. energy independence and they're like, great, we're energy independent. That is not at all true. We still buy tons of energy and we are still very exposed to volatility in global energy markets. You know, you saw a little bit of panic over the summer in so-called driving season when we had super high oil prices mm -hmm. and, you know, volatility affects the U.S. economy and that will continue. So as long as there is a global energy crisis, which there is, and it will continue to be as this war takes a while to shake out in terms of how global energy flows are rerouting. I mean, we're in a major transformation. I would argue that this energy crisis is more severe than 1973, and the implications of it will be more long-lasting and severe. Some of the things that, in terms of affecting the U.S., is the U.S. is now sending more and more U.S. LNG to our allies in Europe. I see a lot on Twitter and people saying, well, why can't we just send Europe all our LNG? We can't, first of all, because they can't take it all because there's infrastructure constraints in Europe on the other side. But then you have to remember that liquefied natural gas is also global. There are other places needing and buying it. So one of the sort of consequences, and this actually directly affects U.S. foreign policy, is that as energy prices are higher and scramble to find non-Russian energies drives prices higher, Europe can generally afford to pay those prices. As you see, Germany just announced a $200 billion protection plan to protect its consumers from high energy prices. That's huge. But poor countries can't. So developing nations like Sri Lanka, like Pakistan, they basically can't even afford energy right now. So um, Sri Lanka actually failed to secure uh, enough energy to get through the winter. This has basically destroyed their local fishing market. I mean, so the ripple effects of this are huge. For the United States, it requires having a really cohesive idea of how to act as an energy superpower. OPEC has announced that it's going to cut oil production in an effort to keep oil prices high. And the U.S. has said that it is against this and wants to try to take actions to lower oil prices, to sort of protect citizens from the incoming global recessions. And one way that the U.S. can do that is by releasing volumes from the SPR, from the Strategic Reserve, Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So the U.S. has announced it's going to sort of release more of those volumes. Now, that strategy, some people might agree with it, some might not. What basically happens is you empty your reserve when oil prices are lower, and then you have to buy them back at some point. Mm -hmm. So are you going to lose or gain with that? And so it's sort of a strategic calculation. There are also now news that perhaps the U.S. has negotiated to relieve some sanctions with Venezuela. So to get Venezuela to bring some oil back into the market, because the U.S. basically wants to bring oil prices down to help both Europe, to protect American consumers, and just to protect consumers from spiraling energy costs that are going to remain high for the next few years. I guess a key takeaway is energy independence in the U.S. is overblown. We live in a global market, and so we're vulnerable to fluctuations and disruptions in that market. Absolutely. 
Well, we're coming close to the end of our time, but I want to ask one last question related to U.S. policy, and that has to do with the NATO alliance. And you've spent a lot of time now working with our NATO allies. And I'm just curious your sense of how what we've seen from Russia, especially over the last year, but continuously over a long period of time with the use of this energy weapon, how is that changing NATO's function? How is it changing NATO's missions? How is it changing the cohesiveness or lack thereof in that alliance? The invasion of Ukraine in February was kind of the greatest thing to happen to NATO in 30 years. I mean, my gosh, the, the cohesion amongst the NATO allies and sort of the, the resurgence of NATO over the past year has just been stunning in terms of just coming together to really make the decision that what Russia did was wrong, trying to make a strong sort of show of force against Russian aggression. So that's huge. You know, but at the same time, there has always been divergent interests within the NATO community. One of the most severe ones, I think, prior to 2022 was energy. And that, you know, some NATO states were very reluctant to take a hard line on Russia because of the energy issue. Now, especially after the explosion of Nord Streams, I think Europe is pretty committed to moving away from Russian energy one way or another. How it does that will be interesting. And I think the biggest question for me as regards to sort of the NATO community and cohesion is, you know, Europe is really about to enter a very serious recession, probably a more serious than the United States. A lot of these states will contract, you know, possibly 5%, which is huge. So when you start getting into a severe recession with historically high energy prices, consumers are really squeezed. What happens to voting? I mean, European elections happen all the time. This is not like the United States where it's, you know, once every four years. These governments could be voted out of office tomorrow in Europe. We've already seen the impact of some consumers and some citizens being nervous about this with the Italian elections mm -hmm. and the elections of Georgia Maloney, far right. Is this the time when the far right in Europe could be voted back in in the next few years? I, I think probably yes. I think there'll be a resurgence in the next few years. And then what does that do to NATO, right? What do these sort of far right populists who don't want to be sending money to a U.S. led institution, how will they want to commit to basically standing up to Russia in what will be a long and simmering conflict in Ukraine? So I'm not sure how long this uh, coherence might last. Well, thank you for all this good news, <laughs> Professor Holland. And it's a good reminder that you've done some terrific work on the rise of populism as well. And these are obviously related phenomena. So we'll have to have you back to talk about that at a future date. But for now, thank you for sharing your wealth of insight with Sea Power, and we wish you fair winds and following seas. Thank you. Thank you.